I love the generative moment in a really engaging conversation when the world falls away and you forget time and place. I've had listening as a secret superhero power for as long as I can remember. I think listening helps build a great conversation and real listening is done with an open curiosity and very little of your own agenda. It may sound easy, but it can be really hard to do. I like to make connections between ideas and people. It's just the way my brain works. Why do we connect with other human beings? I think it's part of the hierarchy of needs. Comfort, connection, community. I've always been uncomfortable with the question, what do you do? I don't equate what you do with who you are. We all have multiple interests, passions, families, backstories, and futurescapes that make us who we are. Every interaction changes us, some in big and some in small ways. I hope this podcast changes you. Inside of a drop of water, you are everything. You are a complete biosphere of microorganisms and life force. You are understanding and movement. You are lost and found. Like the mysterious sock that emerges from the dryer without its mate, there's light and dark. There's aging and death. It's all the same. We are here and they are there. We encapsulate all these tiny moments on a long continuum. Who do you choose to be in this moment? You are different variables all happening at the same time in Cascade. You are waves in the ocean. You change direction when you need to. You lap up into and meet yourself. You are perfect balance and stumbling grace. You can retreat and pause anytime you like and still end up where you are. Nothing is written in sand that the ocean can't wash away. Their future is not yours. Your future hasn't even been lived yet. Like light and water, you bend and refract into yourself. Your beauty creates this beauty. Your pain creates this pain. The waves carry you forward. Your life is all connectedness and all knowing. You are a precious drop of water for a thirsty soul. Jessica Smith is my next guest. Uh, as an arts administrator and consultant, Jessica holds special interest in amplifying the power of arts and culture to catalyze positive social change, connect individuals across a wide array of lived experiences, and draw from the existing strengths of communities. From 2012 until 2017, Jessica served as Director of Education and Community Engagement at the Boston Symphony Orchestra, providing internal and external leadership for BSO education and community engagement programs. Since January of 2016, she has offered consulting services via Orchestrate Inclusion, which is orchestrateinclusion.com, serving as external partner to orchestras and other performing arts organizations as they create and implement strategies towards greater diversity, equity, and inclusion within their organizations. Jessica served for three years as a senior diversity, equity, and inclusion advisor to the League of American Orchestras. She currently consults with individual orchestras, including the San, Fran San Francisco Symphony Orchestra, Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, and Pacific Symphony. Prior to arriving in Boston, Jessica was the Senior Director of Community Programs at the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra and the Education Coordinator at the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. Jessica received an MA and a Master of Arts in Arts Administration and an MBA from Southern Methodist University and completed her undergraduate education at Indiana University in Bloomington where she studied horn performance and political science. She's a graduate of, 20, of the 2015 LEAD Boston program, an executive leadership program focused on social responsibility administered by the YWCA Boston, and has completed the InterOne workshop. Whew. Jessica is a trained mediator and completed 40 hours of mediation training in 2020 with, in accordance with MGL uh, law within MD with MWI in Boston. 
which is how I met her. And uh, she is part of a practice group that I belong to for mediators. And we're going to talk about uh, diversity and equity, equity, inclusion in the arts. We're going to talk about uh, the work that she does. We might touch on mediation. And I'm very excited to talk to her today. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Felicia? <laughs> Good. Good. So, so we know each other because of mediation training and practice group. Um, yeah. But it's so funny because um, when I was telling somebody else that I was going to have you on today, I was like, we have some sort of other intersecting um, lives. I worked actually with a woman who is um, a trained pianist and was at the BSO for a bazillion years <laughs> a long time ago as a, in her small PR firm. And then I went to school with um, Kim Nolteny, who yeah. <laughs> you worked with I as well. Know. Yes, very well. Yes, so, absolutely. And she's at Dallas. Yeah. She's at the Dallas Symphony sure now. She is, and what's funny is that I my first job was at the Dallas Symphony, so it's this this tight little circle of of patterns, right? We we all know each other, we all connect back to where we started from, and yeah, I was just so thrilled. The music world is is a small one, so we tend to know each other quite well. It really is. I feel like the arts world is small too, especially within Boston. Oh, um, it really is. It really is. When I moved here, I was, if somebody told me immediately, they said, you know, it's a big city, but it feels like a small town in terms of sectors, and, and uh, I've been certainly finding that to be true, which is a beautiful thing. <laughs> well, I'm glad you can appreciate it because it's sometimes hard for someone who's not a native born. And even yeah. if you're a native born, you're, you're sort of like, you know, early on, if this is going to be your career in the uh -huh. arts, not to burn bridges, uh -huh. because uh, those people tend to float back in and, and out of different sure organizations. Do. or Yeah. And just in general, right? It's a great reminder to, you know. Try to be a nice person. Try to be a good person as yeah, much as possible. So, exactly. Yeah, it's been a um, Boston's funny that way because it, it it definitely asks you, hey, do you really want to live here? I mean, you have to work a little bit to, to kind of break through and, yes. and um, get to know the area, especially for folks who have been here for so many generations. So, did you grow up in the Midwest, or did you just go to school in? in I in, did. Okay. I grew up in Minot, North Dakota, actually, uh, way up, way up north, about an hour from the Canadian border. Wow. Um, and it was a, a city of about, when I lived there, about 30,000 people. And then we had an Air Force base. Anybody associated with Air Force knows the Minot Air Force Base because everybody does a tour of duty there. It's sort of this uh, rite of passage. And uh, their, their base is about 10 minutes north of the city, and it was another 10,000 people. So I had the good fortune of being in this really rural world, but I met people from around the world because mm. they were coming through the base. And I also had friends that, you know, I would get very used to people coming in for a year and then leaving. And uh, it was really a, a pretty fantastic experience as a kid. Were you always drawn to the performing arts or? Yeah, I was. I was. My, my parents, started out as well they're they're both my family's just full of teachers and mm -hmm. my parents both studied music but especially leaned toward the music education side of things mm -hmm. and so they taught for for many years and when I was born my dad took a job selling insurance to keep the, the finances more steady in the house and um, but yeah he was a trumpet player my mom was a clarinet player and I was a little French horn player as a 10 year old and going forward wow that's yeah. a beautiful instrument. That's it also is. an unusual instrument to be drawn to. It is. I had a teacher who was, uh, everybody has this teacher, right? I remember that, that beautiful thing in fourth and fifth grade where they're trying to patent. At that point, they still had programs, uh, at least in my school, that were bringing kids into band and orchestra. And I knew I wanted to play a band instrument. And Mrs. Mrs. Crankshaw, Sherry Crankshaw, who I will never forget, she said, you know, have you thought about the horn? She said, I play the horn. And I remember I had seen somebody with one once. So I was like, yeah, I want that. And um, it's a really interesting instrument because it's, teaches you constantly that you're not not in control you can you there's no such thing as mastery you can pick it up and literally play you know 50 different notes with the same fingering and it just is all about kind of that acceptance 
That's funny because we had that same conversation with my stepdaughter over the weekend. Um, she's very musical. Her mom sings and her um, dad, my my um, fiancé, is a drummer, and he sings as well. And um, we had gotten her a really nice keyboard. Uh, she had lessons for a while, and she kind of dropped out of them, but she <laughs> unpacked the keyboard and was just noodling around and she was like, oh my God, I forgot so much. And her dad was saying, he's like, I've been playing for like almost 40 years. Like you, yeah. you, um, I'm always learning things. I'm always figuring yeah. out new things to do. And, and, you know, he plays an instrument where you're using both your feet and your hands, um, yes. which yes. is just, you know, mind blowing. Yes. It really does yeah. blow my mind. Um, yeah. yeah. And then that, but that idea that you can always be learning something new about it or mm -hmm. um, growing with the instrument or um, you'll see somebody play something or do something with it and you'll be like, oh, I like that technique. Yeah. Maybe I can pick yeah. that up. Absolutely. It's this sort of lifelong learning process, right? I mean, it's, um, I, I think it's an amazing thing. Anytime you're, whether it's a, sports or an instrument or something that you're trying to, I wouldn't say, you know, the, the hope is some achieving some mastery, but we mm -hmm. all know that there really is no such thing yeah. that it will continue to teach you how much you don't know. And one thing I love about instruments, especially about music, is that it teaches you to be your own self-critic. Um, mm. And some days you do that really well in terms of, you know, some gentle, I'm noticing this and what can I do about this? And having great teachers helps with that. And there are other days you go in the practice room and kind of the worst side of you comes out in terms of, wow, I should, shouldn't play this instrument. I'm terrible. I'm, you know, mm. and so it's sort of this constant uh, work with yourself in terms of being your own teacher and allowing space for that self-critique, but also being gentle with yourself. Yeah. Why so, do you, yeah. why do you think that um, if that sort of, how you if if learning is so much a part of uh arts and in an art community and even artists mm -hmm. why do you think that doesn't translate sometimes to arts administrators oh wow what an interesting question uh tell me more about what you're what you're thinking yeah maybe that's maybe that's the wrong the... wrong assumption okay so maybe ah. i was maybe i was coming at it from an assumptive point that <laughs> That like um, having worked in nonprofits, having worked yeah. with arts organizations, I've found them to be slow to change. Mm. And um, sometimes folks leading those organizations are not necessarily artists, but yeah. they're, um, they're brought in to sort of project manage and yeah, and yeah. they want to get the arts organizations to the next level but I think the reason I'm coming at that's the way I'm coming at it is I want to bring in the into the conversation the work that you do with equity yeah. and inclusion and sort of talk about like overall how that could be a challenging picture regardless of the field but in particular how I could see that it would be very challenging in arts organizations. Yes. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of pieces. And, and the reason I asked that question, too, is that trying to get a we just we just mediated each other, didn't we? Um, <laughs> we you know what? We modeled we modeled good conversation. We modeled it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yay, we did it. Thanks for uh, we so I think there are multiple answers to that. And, and that's maybe one of the reasons I'm so drawn to the work, too, is that. It's, it's interesting, regardless of what field you're in, we're working with human beings, right? And, and I think human beings have primal um, elements that, that come out at different points. And one of those elements is fear and fear uh, as connected to change, as mm. connected to progress. Humans process change as fear a lot of the time, yep. and I find that to be very true in my work. That moving past and through that fear, what what are what are the pieces, and what is it specifically that you might be when when we talk about um, growth in terms of 
really being sure we're inclusive organizations. And there is a reaction of fear. What what part of that is sitting there? And depending on the person, depending on the organization, that can be, uh, you know, and as I start to dig into work of anti-racism and white supremacy culture, that comes down to I, I – I know inherently that I have privilege and I hold privilege in this space. Uh, I may also hold wealth in this space. Mm. My wealth, my identity, my privilege is attached to this art form and or space. And so the idea of changing that is sometimes processed as loss, certainly not for everyone. But I find it very interesting because our organizations in the United States have been built so much on um, patron generosity and and individual contributions and uh we look to external sources for funding and that has created whether we whether we like it or not um sort of this circle of um yeah of of a depth of connection sometimes to our organizations and so examining that without judgment and and kind of digging into that and and what are the connections again what are the things we're rewarding is a lot of what i do in my work and that's tough stuff I hear your I hear the energy behind it though too. It was interesting yeah. on the way, uh, literally driving in the car on the way to the this uh, the station to record this podcast with you. NPR was uh, having one of their shows was hosting the idea with a panel of um, examining how NPR in general and public media in general is skewed a certain way to a certain yeah. socioeconomic group potentially mm-hmm. and then how do they combat combat that with uh, more diverse hosts more diverse mm-hmm. topics um and then uh, also member member listeners so who's listening right. why are they listening um as you shift the conversation to be hopefully more equitable, more inclusive, more broad, Mm -hmm. that also would attract a broader audience and a broader membership. So it's, um, but it can be tough because um, I'm thinking just of, of challenges I've seen with organizations that I've worked with in the past who desperately want to be inclusive, but don't know how to do it kind of yes. you know does that yes, seem like a, is that a oh, is that a is that a challenge you see huge challenge and i think what we've done and i'm speaking for especially my area of focus with you know in the arts world specifically working with orchestras my my clients and orchestras generally i think get the idea of diversity which is just a measure of difference yes. and so they're seeking diversity and they can talk pretty easily about diversity but getting to inclusion and understanding that diversity doesn't stick around if you haven't built a space that is truly inclusive right and beyond that a space that promotes belonging is the part that's tougher it's tough because it it, it's something that yes you can quantify in some respects but it's also very uh qualitative it is a sense of being and so it can be frustrating for organizations to say well what do we need to do what are the 10 things we need to do to to make this place inclusive and it's it's beyond that it is examining these systems that have been in place for so long and and kind of pulling these part uh, these systems apart layer by layer and examining how our systems have led to exclusivity um so it it is i think you're right on in saying that because it's it's very it's one thing to say well we need you know to have more representation at the table and it's like yes absolutely and we agree 100 percent. but what folks from a wide array of lived experiences are telling us is that hey do i really want to spend my time and talent in this space when it hasn't been created as one that is truly one of belonging i'm not sure that i do and that i do that work a lot with my orchestras uh I hear that story a lot from professional musicians of color who talk. It's it's not um, the myth for so long in terms of representation on stage has been, well, the talent needs to be cultivated. And it, it, it's just, you know, it's, it's up to orchestras to create this pathway. And, and my colleagues of color always say, well, yeah, yeah, of course, as with anything, you need to be thinking about pathway and representation. 
But fundamentally, what we need you to think about is the environment we're entering as professional musicians. You need to do your work internally and be sure that the place that we are planning to spend our careers when we have won that audition is truly a place of inclusion, a place that we want to stay for 30 or 40 years. That's the much harder work. So, you know, what we have seen in our field in terms of a lot of external programming, fellowships and, you know, the connections with the community, which is all great and important. We're just now getting to the point of moving to examination of internal systems and internal behaviors, which I think is the, the key element in all of this and the tougher work. Yeah, it is tougher work, I think. Um, mm-hmm. How did, how, you know, knowing that you're in this field and having uh, done some of this work, how do you continuously sort of evolve your own thinking around the topic? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Knowing that you're you're white, you come from pri- privilege, right? Yeah, in that way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how do you like? How do you continue to self-inform? What a good question. I think uh, it is a. If I am not thinking of that question on a daily basis, that I'm not doing a good job in my role as a mm-hmm. consultant. It is constant awareness and of my whiteness, of the advantage that it brings is key to what I do. And also, I think this progression, and it changes day to day, of thinking about, do is there a place for me in this work as a consultant? And if so, where can I do the most good and why? Mm-hmm. With, with that whiteness in play, um, I'm a white woman and I'm going to be a white woman. So knowing that, what do I want to do with that? Mm. And I think of, um, you know, one of the gifts I've been given is uh, 15 plus years in this field. I know this field inside and out. I adore this field. That's why I stay in it. I love I love the arts. I love orchestras. I love music. And I feel as though I have a special obligation and also gift to be able to enter these spaces. They're predominantly white spaces mm. to begin these conversations as a white person with other white people. Mm. That's not to say by any means that I need to be absolutely sure that I'm also in that process centering voices of color um, and being sure that I'm amplifying those voices. But I would like to use my whiteness to do that, to center those voices, to bring those stories forward and to sort of, you know, sometimes I'm kind of a person when people meet me, they're like, oh, you know, this is this is another person that who is white, who I can feel comfortable talking with us about, about this with and to use that hopefully for good, to use that in a way that meets people where they're at. So that's that's my hope. Um, and a lot of that is also just trying, you know, a big uh, portion of every day for me is is trying very hard to stay connected to people that I admire, specifically people of color who Mm. are leading this work and, uh, you know, across sectors um, and being in touch as much as possible with the things that challenge me about what they're saying too. And like, why is that? Noticing that, noticing, you know, what, where do my buttons get pushed and what areas does that mean I need to work on? And then trying to supplement those areas with my own learning and my own professional development. Mm -hmm. What? How diverse was the community um, you grew up in? Oh, in terms of racial diversity, uh, my my area in North Dakota was really special. I, I have such a uh, I, I love my homeland because it is filled with um, American Indian history and connection. And so my parents actually taught on a res- reservation in partial North Dakota. Um, it was a Mandan Hidatsa Arikara tribe. And that was uh, the, my for my first year of life where I called home. And I would say in terms of connection, um, I had a special, special opportunity as a kid to grow up in this land that was so deeply respected and cultivated by um, American Indian tribes and individuals. And so I had a really close connection in that regard. I also, again, because of the, I, I would say that, you know, North Dakotans in general, we got a lot of super white, uh, <laughs> super white Norwegian Germans. And that's, that's me. That's, that's my, my ethnicity and, um, and my race. And we also in Minot and also in Grand Forks, again, had, folks from around the world coming in. Mm. And so I, 
I'm not sure I even really knew as a kid how lucky I was because I was going to high school with kids from, you know, they had, they had done time on bases in Japan and, and, um, you know, certainly we're all over the United States, but some of them were from Europe. Some of them, you know, Mm -hmm. spent time and and it it was just a very cool, uh, place to, to grow up. And so I think I got luckier than most in that space Mm -hmm. in in North Dakota because of that. But, you know, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't major city land either. And I knew that as a kid. I mean, I wanted to see the the closest big city was Minneapolis and that was 10 hours away. Um, And so it's been, I I have to say, I think it's primed me for appreciation Mm. of being able to travel, being able to live in other cities. And also, again, a love and awareness of where I came from. Your, um, when you mentioned, uh, your um, your ethnicity. I I thought of um, the Master Butcher's Singing Club by Louise Urdek. Oh, Urdek. oh, I don't know that. Oh, it's uh, so she's a Native American author, um, and she wrote she wrote about I believe it might be a paternal uh, side of her family, which is that uh, uh, Norse, Swede, uh, Germanic. Uh-huh. Uh, ancestor that came as a master butcher and created beer oh, wow. and things like that and um and then the that in the a native american side as well of her family and she writes wow. a lot about that part of the country in the dakotas and in minnesota and um, yeah most of her books are sort of set in those that time space i just finished during covid the night watchman which was about i think it was a story based on one of her grandfathers it's fictional but she uses real elements i like her writing a lot that's Um, amazing what is her name again one more time uh louise erdick i say her name wrong let me let me just google it and then i can (laughs) i'm like sometimes i'm terrible with names Um, no that's great that's great this is wonderful what a great lead she's a i love her i love her work it's um she does um like it's almost a little murder mystery kind of sometimes she she'll write about that way i get so excited when i have anything set in my homeland oh yes okay i'm like oh yeah louise erdick erdrich that's e-r-d-r-e-r-d-r-i-c-h i-c-h yep I knew plenty of people with that last name. <laughs> she was born in Little Falls, Minnesota. Oh, I love it. She, I'll definitely check that out. She has a ton Thank of books, you. but I re- highly recommend the Master Butcher's Singing Club. Um, okay. She, The Roundhouse is a really great one I read. Um, Master Butcher's Singing Club was in like 2003, okay. um, but it's a great book. She's great, oh, really great wait. author. I love the characters, and she always just, um, she always has, uh, she t- writes about Native American language and tribe, and but it, it's not um, in a way that it's um, expository. It's more like inclusive so that you're part of the story when you're reading it. So there's oh, no, wow. there's not a sense of other when you're reading yes. it. It's not like voyeurism. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm peering in and finding out. It's more like you're part of the narrator's language and story. I love that. And, and that's so important, too. We're talking about inclusion in terms of the power of who tells the story, right? Yes. And yeah, being able to, to be sure that that great power that comes with that is used in a good way. So that I cannot wait. Thank you so much, Lisa. This is exciting. <laughs> so, I love like recommending I books. <laughs> I talk about, I could talk about books all the time. Oh, I love it. That's something I don't have that I, I I'm going to need you to, to school me over time because I, I am not as good as I wish to be about picking good stuff up. Do you like poetry at all? I do. I do. Um, I, you know, somebody that I've really been into, uh, who's, who's, I think he's still local, is Clint Smith, um, out, out of, I believe he's still at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Uh, really fantastic. And I actually use some of his poetry in, I, I try as much as possible when I'm working with artists to use art. And so, yes. uh, you know, using some poetry to convey as a black man, you know, Clint's experience. Um, he's somebody who's a favorite. Who, who do you read? Um, I really like um, Ocean Vong, and uh, ah. he wrote. Um, he's a poet, but he he wrote um, a book as well. It's they they say it's a novel, but it's really memoir, and then there's poetry in it. 
um, and um, and then he has a book of poetry called uh, Night Sky and Exit Wounds. Um, I like Joy Harjo, who is a Native American poet, um, and she wrote a book called American Sunrise. Ooh. And then um, I'm a huge fan of Amanda Gorman. I mean, uh, I, she uh, was, um, I believe, two years ago, the last time the Pops did their Fourth of July celebration. She actually was a yes. featured speaker. Yeah. Do you remember uh-huh. seeing her? You know, it's funny because I didn't realize until after the inauguration, I've seen clips and I was like, oh, my gosh, look at that. I had no idea that it, it's it's. Um, it is just lovely and fantastic that she, it seems like a perfect fit for her. I love her presentation. I mean, I think her word choice is beautiful too, but I love her presentation and I love, I love that blend. I'm not a good, um, uh, when I've done poetry, I'm, I'm a reader. I'm not good from uh, like saying something from memory and then adding that performance element to it. I don't yeah. have that. Um, I'm not as good at flow when I'm doing it from memory. Um, and that might just be, you know, my crutch is the, is the paper or the words in front of me. <laughs> have you, have you been able to do a lot of reading? I haven't done a ton. I did. Um, I did take a storytelling workshop class, oh. and I had my like final recital at the, at Club Passim and in oh, in Cambridge. Wow. Um, <laughs> so I've done storytelling. I've done. I belong to a writers group, and we do a uh-huh. final year end reading. And so I've read the past five years. Um, wow. It live last year we did it via Zoom, and they recorded it. So it's a YouTube video. Um, and then I have a friend who does an open mic on Fridays, and sometimes I pop into that and I'll read I something. I love that. There's something cathartic about writing something and then sharing it in that way. If you are a writer, that's just a beautiful thing. I love that you're you're doing that. What lucky uh, lucky audiences do you have to hear from you? Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, I think it's yeah. um, it's uh, it's. It, I never realized um because a lot of times you're writing when you're a writer you're you write in a vacuum so even if you do share you don't necessarily hear directly from people so when Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. one of the last times i did share at at the like year-end public reading and people came to the library and um (laughs) i had a poem (laughs) and a young girl came up to me and she goes i really liked your poem and she said it kind of like conspiratorially to me, like, you know, I got it. I got it. And I was like, wow. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank you so much. Like, I just hadn't had that direct feedback before. And yeah. I thought, I thought, oh, yeah. Oh, that is, that's the stuff of life right there. Some of that connection, right? That she's just like, yeah. Yeah, this lady. Yep, I get this. (laughs) Lovely, I love that. When you're performing, or when you were part of, were you part of an orchestra when you play, or are you part of a Uh, group? Or yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I played. I I was an active musician through through undergrad, um, and then I went on to do grad school. I got my MBA and MA in arts administration, which was, you know, less focused on the performance side. But yeah, I mean, there's something about, and I think the part of what we're pulled to, I think you just named it. It's the, and I, I always go back to this, it, it, like the significance and belonging and connection, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, and with live performance, regardless of, of medium, there, there's something about either sitting in the audience. There, I was just reading an article about movie theaters right i mean it isn't Mm. live performance but there is something about taking two hours of your life dedicating it to sitting next to other people and having human reactions with them and and you know that's it's gonna be very interesting after this is all over to see what happens with both live performance and with movies and media but with 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 either a musical performance or theater performance dance or poetry there is something so human so deeply human and i think that's you know one of the main reasons we're drawn to it it's just that it's exactly what the little girl said you know the fact that she would come up to you and say hey i feel i feel a connection with you yeah i get this you know we speak the same language yeah and in a world where we are all looking for that that's uh, that's a it's a lovely place to find it 
The um, uh, the African American author that you were um, talking about. Do you have a poem of his that you would like to share, or am I putting you on the oh, spot? Gosh, I could I could find one. Um, let me find the one that I use a lot. Ah, uh, let me forgive me for searching here. What's his name it's, again? Um, Clint. It's about Harvard Clint Smith. And for the cat, yep, here it is. For the cat, for the taxi cabs that pass me in Harvard Square, I can certainly share that if I can actually. Of course, the thing I'm looking for, I can't find. It's the actual text. I can edit this portion out. <laughs> Oh, I mean, if they're swearing in there, please, you don't, we don't have any limitations right now. Oh, good. And for language. I'm going to follow him on Twitter. He looks interesting yeah, to me. Yeah, he's pretty amazing. He is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, and this for, I actually have to go get the book out of my, my room here. Yeah, I'm going to do that one just a second. Yeah, the, the poem, the reason I love this poem is that it, especially, again, as a white person who often is working with other white people, building empathy and making human connections around this work, you know, rather than thinking of it as DEI work or, you know, really thinking of it as being about the human experience is so important. And so if I can find this, I will read it to you. Here it is. Is it okay to yes. share this? Okay. Yeah, go right So ahead. this is for the taxi cabs that pass me in Harvard Square, and it is by Clint Smith. When the first cab passes you, wonder if you've been rendered an autumn tree, derelict monument amid the white noise of Massachusetts Avenue. When the second cab passes you, pull off your hood and hat, even though the ice is fresh. You don't want to be mistaken for a shadow, a threat. When the third cab passes you, pull out your Ivy League ID and wave it in your hand like the curb was a desert island. When the fourth cab passes you, think of fifth grade. Mrs. Capperson holding all the boys in for recess to tell us if we don't get tattoos, grow out our hair, pierce our ears or sag our pants, everything will be all right. When the fifth cab passes you, know everything is not all right. When the sixth cab passes you, imagine yourself a puddle existing as both transparency and filth, something that won't be there by the afternoon. When the seventh cab passes you, remember how grandma said, this is how long it took for the good Lord to build the world. I just love that. Mm. I love it because it's also local, right? I mean, it's this experience, I think. Uh, it's his, ex <laughs> I assume it's, it's his experience teaching at Harvard, literally being a black man teaching at a, you know, most Ivy League school as they come. Mm. And that experience of walking out of his classroom, being a black man trying to hail that cab. Yeah. And so I just love it because I think for, those of us who are privileged enough to have never had that experience, um, the idea, and one thing I talk a lot with my clients about is um, cumulative impact. The idea of, okay, this happened once. Yeah, that didn't feel good. It happened twice. Okay, there's a pattern. It happens three times, and you start to build this pain body, right? I mean, it's just these acts of violence over and over and over again that you are internalizing in your physical self and your mental self and your spiritual self. And I just think he does a beautiful job in the, in the poem of describing that. So that's some Clint Smith for you. That's great. He's a and shout out to him. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the last guest I spoke to, um, she was one of the first people that I remember um, talking to me about microaggressions and she does a lot yeah. of leadership work and um, during pandemic she actually created this wonderful project um, which I can't think of the name of right this second but 
It was, um, it's all about perspectives in her community. She lives in an affluent suburb of Boston, and um, she's a person of color. She collected all of these uh, stories from people of color that lived in the community who had experienced either overt or subtle racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, the stories are heartbreaking. They're really... they impacted me deeply because there was, uh, we talked about that, you know, that wound there. There's a wound. And I think people, you know, as a white woman of privilege, you're, I may have known it was there and it may have floated in and out of my consciousness and I may have Mm. tried to make myself aware of things, but I think it really wasn't until COVID and a lot of the protests that happened um, last year and this year um, that I really examined that in a more full capacity. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, which is one of the reasons that my the season of my podcast is creating community through conversation. And I love that. I'm trying this season specifically to be conscious about at least half my guests being people of color so that Mm -hmm. they can share perspective and stories. And Mm -hmm. also, I mean, from my own sense of learning, my own sense of how do people divine community? How do we have conversations around topics that are difficult or with people that disagree with us? Or Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. how do we inform ourselves without making it somebody else's job to Right. Tell us. There it is. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is so beautifully said. What, what was her name again? Forgive me. Um, oh, her, my, the, the pre- last guest. Yeah, her mm-hmm. name is Anna Geraldo Kerr. And uh, she has a website, and she she's Harvard educated again. She's <laughs> She's got more degrees and more certifications and more training. Um, but she is, um, I met her because she and I have, um, two certifications from two different coaching groups that are, you don't usually find someone did both what Martha Beck and well coaches. And we happened to be sitting at a conference and she was online. It was Facebook saying like, I'm at this conference. Is there anyone else here? And I was like, Oh, I'm here too. (laughs) And we ended up having lunch and, um, I love it. So we've connected through some of the local groups and we don't really either of us define ourselves as coaches, but we use the coach um, model. I think that the coaching model for how we approach the different work that we do. So like, you know, um, stages of change, how you identify stages of change or people's willingness for change. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of the language that you and I learned around mediation, like yes. unconscious bias and, uh-huh. um, how you, how are you an active listener? You know, that yeah. kind of thing. positions versus interests, all that good stuff, right? <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. She sounds, I'll, I'll definitely look her up too. And, yeah. and the, the experience there of, um, you know, I, again, I think about this with my whiteness in terms of a lot of the very wonderful human beings I work with who are white people truly have not heard or begun to internalize these stories as being current. And so, um, again, with the hope of not re-traumatizing colleagues of color and saying, hey, tell me your story again of your trauma, <laughs> you know, um, trying to, with permission, bring these stories to light, these things that are happening on a daily basis in our field is a part of what I hope to do uh, because I, I find the reaction is consistently exactly what you said. I ha- Oh my, you know, I, this is terrific. I, I opening my eyes to this is uh, it's unbelievable. So generally I think people are, and I tend to lean on the side of assuming positive intent that people do want to help each other and, and to do good things and be good people. And so when they are made aware of these moments and the feelings of, and the feeling of this constant oppression, um, it is definitely a, a key turning point, I think, in organizational change. I think one of the things I was sharing with my with my guest Anna was that um, 
This might be my love of learning as well, so I wonder if you identify at all with this, but I like, I've always thought of myself as the other, so I always kind of felt different or, or unique or, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes, and that was not always in a positive way, and um, I think generationally, I'm older than you. Actually, I know I'm older than you. Um, <laughs> um, but I've always kind of come up against um, definitely some misogyny. And, yeah. um, yep. and um, so I, 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 I deeply, deeply empathize, even if I can't completely understand somebody else's mm-hmm. perspective, but I know what I know what it feels like to be picked apart and I know mm-hmm. what that accumulation of the expectation that I'm going to have to work twice as hard just to be considered for something and mm-hmm. um I'm going to make less and um you know I have a partner now I'm glad he is successful at what he does but he has a high school degree and he's always made more than I do I have a masters yeah yeah Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that is also I I want to name this because again I think as white women we're in constant need of thinking about this is this feeling of like these these the misogyny the the oppression that we know to be real as women and I encounter in my work so often uh, it's really wonderful white women who say exactly what you said in terms of like, I can empathize with this. And I, and I am a person who empathizes. And sometimes the way that the work I do has been done is um, unintentionally what can be referred to as sort of the oppression Olympics. I I had this happen and well, hold on, aren't you saying? And I, I oftentimes have women come up to me after sessions or, and and it happens with various aspects of identity. But, you know, I remember clearly one conversation I had with two women from another state. I remember after I gave a, a presentation and they came up and were just in tears, you know, and just so upset. And it was a very, honestly, it was a very light session. We didn't really dig hard into oppression but we touched on it and they they said one of them said to me you know do you look at me look at me do you does it look like you know you don't see my oppression and and it was really an interesting moment because it was very much this raw feeling of um this or that Uh, you're either oppressed or you're not and in this work looking for the binary it's a very white thing to do yes of either or yes and bad good and 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 when the actuality is yes and yes you have you have experienced and i acknowledge the oppression you've experienced as a woman and if you woke up as a black woman every day that oppression would be yeah. multiplied at a level that we can't imagine. Right. But for, for, especially for those of us who are white women, I think that that is a new way of looking at things. And again, approaching that with at least my, my preference is approaching others with some gentleness there of saying, Hey, you know, this is a new way of considering this. And, and again, most women um, that I've worked with will come to that, but it is a moment of like, I had not thought about this. It's the intersectionality piece. Right. So like, um, like I still have the privilege of relief from that feeling. Yes. Like, yes. so it can be something I can tap into or not tap into. Yes. And it's not something mm-hmm. that follows me regardless of whether I choose it to follow me or not. Yes. Like, I have exactly. way more power over it, even though it's affected and informed me. Mm-hmm. So... Like you said, it's not, it's not about, um, it's not about a comparison, comparing scars, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It is a different level and it's, um, that's the other thing I started reading. Um, um, let's see, I'm so terrible with names, but it's how to be an anti-racist. Yeah. Abram Kennedy. Yes. There you go. And it's the idea that it's not a fixed identity. So we have fluidity in terms of our racist thought or uh, a racist action or word or something that potentially could be insensitive. And then we can learn from that. We can evolve from that. 
It's yeah. not a fixed identity. And we can be totally we can be unbiased or want to think of ourselves as an anti-racist, but then be uh, committing racism, biasism, ageism, sexism. Yeah. And we just, um, it's constantly something that we we're working on. Totally. This is what I love about the connection between this work and the arts too, is that artists get, we inherently get that what we do is a practice. It's never over. It, that some days we go in the practice room and we play a B flat major scale and it sounds like gold. And wow, I am so glad I went into this field and I am a great musician and yay. And then other days you walk in and you try to get through that same scale and it is not a good day. There are mistakes all over the place. And I think that framing that up, at least in my practice, has been really helpful in allowing some space to make mistakes. And also back to my own whiteness again. Like I've really found that it's important. And even on this on this in this interview, I'm already thinking, like, oh, I wish I would have said this this way. Maybe if I would have thought of this this way. You know, the the constant practice, modeling that and modeling making mistakes in the practice yes. is really important for other white people. And so even with my clients, he's saying, like, letting them know openly, you're going to see me make mistakes, and that's part of the deal. We're going to see each other make mistakes. But our deal is that in this work together, we're going to keep trying. We're going to keep yeah. working. We're not going to back away from it. We're not going to sit in this binary of, you know, I'm either good or bad, but I'd rather to say I'm going to have some tough days. I'm going to make some big mistakes. Um, but that's also, you know, again, like where we come, whether it's our organizations or friends, how we – how we handle that middle ground of I love you and what just happened was not okay. Your action was not okay. That's still some really tricky ground for human Absolutely. beings to navigate. And I think with, you know, equity and inclusion, people want to think that, that it's one and done. And yes. like you're saying, it's, yes. it's an evolving process. It's okay. a process. It's practice. It's a culture change. It's, it is. um, it's tough work too, and I think the what I've again tried to be doing with this podcast is my first guest was a person of color. We had sort of an in-depth conversation. My second guest was someone I know in my life who's a yoga teacher, who yeah. happens to be white as well. And the two of I, two of us, kind of um, talked about grappling with these issues. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we were both kind of sitting with our own whiteness and just sharing with each other. <laughs> yeah. Because it's because um, it would be unfair to do that, I yes. think, with a person yes. of color. Yes. Because then they're yes. the one doing the heavy lifting. Yep. So I would yep. rather um, interview them in their space yes. and have them share their ideas rather than having them having to uh, I don't know be my sounding board or whatever totally so, yeah so, so then I invite folks like you <laughs> in to, <laughs> to talk to me about your work and kind of have us you know sort of pick through these ideas about how do we grapple with it how do we better inform ourselves like oh and it, it's such a it's also like a learned habit um, for organizations that I find to be really interesting of, okay, we're going to start this work. Let's call our colleagues of color into the room and be sure they're there. And be, and I always advise my clients, I'm like, you know, in the, you have got to be sure that at the center of this work is your love and care for those individuals and the exhaustion that they feel and showing, showing individuals that you're going to walk the walk and not just talk the talk, that you right. can come to the table at any point that you feel comfortable, but you are not obligated. And that's a different way of thinking, I think, especially for if I could generalize for white leaders who are thinking, well, I have to have that diversity in the room, you know, which is yes, yes, I hear that. And yes, that is important. More important is the human experience of, of your colleagues of color and, and showing in your action every day that you are willing to do that hard work. And so, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing. And this is why we have white affinity spaces, you know, to work through this stuff so that yeah. our, again, friends and neighbors of color don't, have to add to their plates on top of everything else. 
Is that what it's but called? Yeah. I like that. What is it called yeah, again? Yeah, there, there are affinity groups, um, just like at, at work, there have been for some time, um, they're, they're, they have different names, but it's sort of a, a affinity group is, is one term. And it, it for a while, at especially organizations, corporations, it's been for, let's say, LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. folks, you know, they, a, a place to come together, um, people of color to come together, different aspects of identity, being able to sort of meet in a professional space and connect if on an optional basis. Mm-hmm. And what has emerged in really, uh, I'm sure it's been around for a while, but, you know, really recent years, especially at an organizational level is, okay, well, and we really need to make a space for us as white folks to be doing our work and recognizing our whiteness and, and really naming it and practicing with each other so that we are not putting colleagues of color in a space where we're asking them to do the work for mm-hmm. us um, to, to do the heavy lifting. So in addition to places at work, there are um, a number of places that you can join an affinity group outside of work and specifically for white women um there are a number of places you can find other white women and just have a space a dedicated space to practice together so that's something that everybody comes to in a very personal way and um can be helpful sometimes for some folks i like that so what what kinds of things do you do to um recharge yourself (laughs) uh well, we just bought a house, so congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. Talk about privilege. It's been a uh, long time coming. We rented for twenty two years, and so this is and in the Boston area. It was quite a, it was a surprise actually the way it all went down. But um, we are just having the best time because we live in this little ranch house that uh, I would love. I wish I could I could show you pictures. It is straight out of the mid fifties, early sixties. And the basement is one of those 1960s, like, rec room, party central, has a wet bar. Oh, my uh, And it hasn't been touched since, I think, the folks that were here before us. It was a woman that was caring for her sister and her mother, and she was a court magistrate, and she was wonderful and loved animals and cats and nature. So we see a lot of that in the yard. I'm pretty sure she wasn't using places like the basement. So it's basically been untouched for 40-some years, and we're trying to sort of bring the love back to this home and, and sort of I feel like a steward of this of this space. So uh, little things like just being out, I'm outside as much as I can possibly be. I'm taking an hour away from outside to talk to you inside so you don't have to hear my birds and squirrels attacking me. Um, and, yeah, you know, when, when life is, is moving in a more uh, a less COVID way, then I love, love performance. I love theater. I love theater. So the last show I saw before COVID happened was actually at Steppenwolf in Chicago. I saw Carrie Coon perform Bug, which was written by her husband, Tracy Letts. And, oh, I love uh, him. He's awesome. Love Tracy. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the two of them are just power theater couple and she's one of my heroes from an acting perspective so i can't wait to get back to that i um yeah i'm I'm a i i there are very few things i don't like to do (laughs) i love to travel i love to eat uh traveling i'm really missing right now i'm sure everybody is and i realize that that's a privilege and i just uh for me i i learn a lot when i travel so um i learn a ton yeah, yeah. I mean, and I really think a lot of it for me comes back to where I grew up too. That you really have to make your own entertainment. You really had to. I mean, you were. Um, it's not like we were surrounded by a ton of options in terms of things to do, and and so we grew up using our imaginations and imagining this world out there. And I feel, you know, even getting on a train and going to New York for work makes me feel like the most, the luckiest person in the world. I just love. It's just amazing to me that we can get on a big piece of metal and fly for 16 hours and be in a completely different world. Um, So I look forward to the times, hopefully in the future, where we can do that without adding to the world's suffering. Where um, we had planned, I was supposed to get married. So the the wedding got pushed off four times, Ah. and now it's scheduled for October of this coming year. Alicia, what a great time to get married. That's lovely. (laughs) And uh, we we had a trip booked to Italy, and that also got postponed. Oh, my gosh. But the trip is back on. 
It's, we're right. going to the Amalfi Coast in uh, September. So we uh, have been, you know, doing Duolingo and learning Italian. And amazing. we were so excited when Stanley Tucci started his series on Italy. So his I first, just, what? Go ahead. I just read about this. And, and I, I, a friend just posted something about making pasta after being inspired by this. What is this a series? Oh my! Has? It's CNN. He's it's on CNN, and it's a taste of Italy. And he goes through all the uh. different regions, and he gives you the history. And his first episode was on the Amalfi Coast in this fantastic uh. restaurant that he and his wife love when they do zucchini. And then, like, Cacio Pepe and, like, different uh. cocktails. And, of course, he's gorgeous. So it's... um. Yeah, <laughs> it is delightful. We've been taping them and like, we, you know, you don't have to. I think they're on demand, but we've been taping them and like watching them and being like, oh, Italy. Oh, oh you are set up. What perfect timing. That's I love that. And we're going to we're the uh, we belong to show of the month club and they actually have a travel club. And this is the sh the oh. the tour we're going on is with the travel club so it's oh it's there's a lot of history and uh it will be well paced and probably f other theater goers that are going on it as well i've taken other trips with this group so it's usually Lovely. nicely done oh, that so. sounds like an absolute dream and a multi-coast i mean I'm not sure you're going to come back. You should probably <laughs> I, have some I people wouldn't. here that will check on you. <laughs> if I couldn't, if I don't have to, I won't. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that time of year is going to be perfect. It's going to be fantastic, yes. And, oh, yeah, we're staying God. in a hotel that I've started following on Instagram, and it's right across from the beach. And oh. then we'll do a day trip to Pompeii and a day trip to the Isle of Capri and um, pasta-making classes and wandering oh, around oh. the lemon groves. That's pretty. If you are ever looking for a personal assistant, I just want to put my <laughs> offering out there that I would be very happy to help you out. Uh, yeah, that's going to be, I mean, the wedding, congrats, and huge. Thank so you. Exciting. But, you know, like getting to Italy is, is pretty high up. I know. <laughs> it, well, it was. I said, let's go someplace that neither of us have been to before. I'd been to Rome and um, Florence, but I'd not okay. been to that far south in Italy. And he's never been to um, to Europe, to mainland Europe. He's been oh. to Ireland. So I said, this you will be an changing. experience for us to share. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's something different. And who doesn't like, you know, pasta and wine and yeah. stuff like <laughs> good stuff to look at? So. It, yeah, it's going to be there. I just saw yesterday this video, you'll have to look it up. Of It made me, um, I had just heard about the Stanley Tucci series. And I'm like, oh, you know, pasta, I've been craving pasta and like Italy sounds great. And there's a video circulating on Twitter of an Italian firefighter rescuing a kitten. And this kitten is trapped and he pull, he's this like big guy and he pulls this baby kitten out and he starts weeping and and reading the comments it, it was just so sweet because it was just a, a man who was truly connected to his emotional state at the moment who wasn't afraid to show that he was just relieved that this cat was okay mm. and it gave italy a really great look <laughs> so oh. I, check it out because it was just like oh you know like this is a country where you 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 hold your emotions out to the world and it was just a beautiful display of that i thought so granted again generalization but um between that and stanley tucci italy's having a good week absolutely and I think yeah. that that, you know, we're all crave, we're craving the arts. We're craving, oh, yeah. we're craving theater, we're craving music and yeah. performance mm -hmm. and, um, you know, hopefully knock on wood when the world is vaccinated, we can all spend time in a movie theater together and I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. Even eating dinner out, you know, I just miss, I miss hearing other people's conversations, um, you know, the things you learn there. And, and that's my favorite part of traveling, too, is just kind of pretend like I'm a fly in the wall and being, yes. amongst, you know, the most uh, kind of normal parts of town just to feel what it's like to, to be there. And so I think um, hopefully we will not do those things without an extra level of appreciation going forward after the year we've had. What um, What's next on your uh 
life list as you expand uh, your um, wet bar and um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> learn to make pasta. Yes. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I work has been uh, unbelievably challenging and wonderful. I've never been so happy in the work that I've been doing. So I've been that just continuing forward and trying to, again, meet clients and new clients, existing clients where they're at and hopefully being of service to the field and to them and, and specifically to individuals who have felt marginalized. Um, and in, on the, in terms of life, again, I, at once things settle down and once I know that it won't be harmful to other people, I really do want to get out there traveling. One of the last places we went, it was, it was a couple of years ago, but it was, it was Japan. And um, that was life-changing. And so, you know, in addition to, we've had another one that we did, uh, I guess 2014 was Norway. Um, and that was amazing, but there's so many places I have not been. And I would yeah. love to try to prioritize that. Uh, say, I want to do that now. I want to make that happen and be sure that I don't lose sight of that. Even while I'm cleaning up our backyard. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do people go to Italy? <laughs> <laughs> Squirrels. You can take them with you. Um, yeah. <laughs> Where uh, where can people find you if they're looking you up online? I know I gave your web address, but why don't oh, you, you give your spiel? Yeah. Well, the easiest place to find me is at, at the website, which is orchestrateinclusion.com. Uh, or you can reach me at jessica at orchestrateinclusion.com. And, you know, there's a little note. You can send me a note if, you, if there's some, a question you have or an idea you have. Uh, great joy of my life is connecting with people and all different ways ways that we can't even expect so i would love to hear from folks and i just so appreciate the time to speak with you felicia one of the great gifts of the mediation experience is meeting you and getting a chance to know you a little bit and i i know that we will have many more conversations and this is just a delight and an honor oh it was my was my um pleasure and i feel the same way i i'm a little i was a little verklempt thank you so much i appreciate all oh. that that was nice those nice words because I feel the same way. So you said Thank it much you. better than I did. <laughs> the guitar. Federico Garcia Lorca. The weeping of the guitar begins. The goblets of dawn are smashed. The weeping of the guitar begins. Useless to silence it. Impossible to silence it. It weeps monotonously as water weeps, as the wind weeps, over snowfields, impossible to silence it. It weeps for distant things, hot southern sands yearning for white camillas, weeps arrows without target, evening without morning, and the first dead bird on the branch. Oh, guitar, heart mortally wounded by five swords. Hi Felicia is produced by Felicia Ryan and she retains all broadcast rights and copyrights to this program. Theme music provided by Stephanie Griffin. Technical support by Heather McCormick. Our sound editing is done by Sully Banger. Social media maven, previous guest, and my online content guru is Rachel Lento. Hi Felicia is supported in part by a generous grant from the Malden Cultural Council and recorded in cooperation with UMA Urban Media Arts in downtown Malden. You can find Hi Felicia on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Podbean, and most platforms a podcasts are found. Please take a moment to like, download, write a review, and share this program. You are our ears. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Hi Felicia or our guest or how to support this podcast, you can visit our Facebook page or Instagram page or www.feliciaryan.com, which is F-E-L-I-C-I-A-R-Y-A-N. And again, thanks for listening.